I'll pour this pestilence into his ear. So will I make the net that will enmesh them all. It's an adult, Iago, who says that in Othello. And it's grown-ups that Machiavelli was writing about when he wrote The Prince, his book about manipulating others and seizing power. Notice he, he titled the book The Prince, not The Little Prince. The, the Little Prince is actually by somebody else, if you don't know that. But in our American lives, the real era of intrigue and manipulation for most of us is not adulthood. It's adolescence, when our social circle is at its most constricting. Today on our program, a story of betrayal and of someone who holds David Koresh-like powers over others and who is only in the seventh grade. From WBEZ in Chicago, to your Radio Playhouse, I'm Ira Glass. But before we get into the body of our story, we will try as adults to manipulate you a little bit and pledge central. Let's check in with Pledge Central, Shirley Jihad. Hi, Ira Glass. Hi. We're trying to manipulate uh, the Radio Playhouse listeners. Well, mani- are that's we? the, that, I guess <laughs> manipulate has a tune of a negative connotation. Oh, encourage, cajole, lure, maybe. Yeah, and we have all entice, these. Entice, how about? Entice. Entice is a very. Seduce. Keep going, baby. You're, you're in a roll. You're in such a roll here. <laughs> sure. Well, let's play. Uh, let's play stuff. Okay. Well, I can tell you, we have special. Number. Yeah. What is the phone number? We gotta seduce them with this phone number: three one two eight three two three one six zero. Stop the music dramatically as yeah, I, I know, say I the number. Do it again. Three one two eight three two three one six zero. Maybe a little radio hypnotism. Three one two eight three two three one six zero. Call that number to pledge your support. And I just want to say that we are so anxious to get you to call. We have very special premiums that we're offering during the coming hour that are available at no other time during the drive. We have three and a half or four, depending on how you count them. The very That's first right. one. The very first one. I'm going to play a little clip of these. These are all audio things. We have. Um, uh, well, how to begin with this? Uh, we a couple of weeks. Well. Very explain quickly. It, explain it. Explain it. Okay. Well, one of them is we have a cassette of recent work by David Sedaris. Uh, cool. Much of it heard here on your radio playhouse. Some of it heard on Morning Edition. This is all new work, including two radio dramas by the Pine Tree Gang, which appear here on your radio playhouse. That's one thing. Another thing is that we have this very odd CD called Shut Up, Little Man, which listeners to the show heard. It's a sort of audio verite of these two... Um, these two uh, men recorded through the walls of their apartment as they argued with each other. And finally, we have this thing. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, we had uh, a show where Julia Sweeney told the story of getting cancer. And she told the story of herself getting cancer and of her brother getting cancer. And she told them as stand-up comedy. And um, she was telling this in a place called Uncabaret. It's a club in Los Angeles where essentially comics come each week, and they tell what is basically sort of comic diary versions of their week. And Uncabaret has a CD that's really pretty wonderful with some well-known people and some not-so-well-known people. And um, here, here's a sample. Uh, this is a, they have about 10 minutes of Julia Sweeney's cancer stories. Here is, um, here's a sample of that. Okay, so we're in the doctor's office, um, and um, Mike, who's doing really great and is want doing one, you know, like responding really well to the treatment, but he's had so many spinal taps that they can't get into his spinal column anymore. So <laughs> the doctor said, I'm just in my mom, my dad's reading about the plague in India, because that's a good diversion. <laughs> and um, my mom is, you know, looking at the doctors and saying, now he looks single. <laughs> and, um, and this doctor comes in and he says, you know, Michael, um, we can't get into your spinal column anymore, so we're thinking about putting a shunt in your head. And um, my brother goes, what? And, and I, he goes, a shunt. And I go, a shunt, like an uh, artificial opening to the brain. And, um, and Mike goes, well, where would this shunt be? And the doctor goes, well, the best place we found is to put it in the forehead. And Mike goes, if you think I am going to get a faucet put into my forehead, I'm already 90 pounds and I have no hair. I'm not going to walk around for a year with a faucet sticking out of my forehead. And my mom goes, no, I think it's more like a spigot. All right, so that's Julia Sweeney. If you want that and more, and more uh, diary entries from Janine Garofalo and uh, people who seem less well-known, but uh, there's Julia Sweeney, Janine Garofalo, Beth Lapidus, Bob Goldthwaite, Taylor Negron, Dana Gould, other people. 
Ask for that when you call, 832-3160. Shirley, you're still there, right? 832-3160. And Shirley, yeah. what is the magic word? We haven't even gotten to the extra special. What oh, is the, the magic word? the extra special, four ninety five for $4.95. You can supersize it. You can supersize it. That's right. If you get a, if you make the $60 pledge and just say supersize it for another four ninety five, you get... More La Bamba than you can handle. Here we go. Here, I think I've got it. This one starts kind of slow. This is a punk La Bamba. We have a little collection of all sorts of La Bambas. It's one of the most covered songs in music. We have the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. We have punk versions. We have Neil Diamond. This is kind of a surf version. Again, we want, we want you to pledge. We want to please you. We want you to pledge and then to supersize it. There you go. 312-832-3160. Come on, go for extra fries and an extra large drink. That's 312-832-3160. Sorry, Ira. No, that's okay. Um, and so the idea is 60 bucks for one of the premia and 64.95 for one of the premia plus. 90 minutes of La Bamba. Take it on vacation with you, right? It, to makes, the Caribbean. it, it makes a fine, fine summertime present for <laughs> anyone. <laughs> That's right. 312-832-3160. Call now to pledge your support for your radio playhouse. Okay, sure. I'll check back with you in a bit. Thanks, Ira. So let's get to today's story on this, our radio show. This is a story of uh, enemies. But um, some of the bitterest enemies are people who used to be close friends, you know. And our story begins with the friendship of these two boys named Bob and Dave. And today's program will be in four acts. Act one, Dave's love. Act two, Dave's hate. Act three, Dave today. Act four, another Dave. That another Dave is David Sedaris, actually. We have a story by David Sedaris coming up. So, act one. Our story takes place in a small town somewhere on the East Coast. Dave and I became friends in fourth grade, and we were friends through sixth grade. And I have to describe him physically because that's a huge part of his personality. He was, and he still is, an extremely wiry person, very thin. He looks emaciated, and he also, his skin is like a jaundiced yellow color. He was always very acneed. Uh just very pale, pasty, and he just looked sick. Um, I don't really know how we became friends. We were in class together in grade school. But as things progressed into fifth grade, uh, it became pretty clear that our friendship was the most intense friendship in the class. We would talk on the phone at least once a day and for hours. We would just talk for hours and just make each other laugh so hard. Um, and that was why we always got separated in class was just because we weren't troublemakers. We were just, we just made each other laugh a lot. We had very similar senses of humor. Uh, the scatological jokes were the primary jokes. And we, I was just thinking about this today when I was thinking, and I remember this one thing that we used to do, which we did obsessively, which is the, it's, it's embarrassing to <laughs> say it, but we were obsessed with the words poop and pee. And we made this little thing where I would say poop, and he would say pee, and then he would say we, and then I would say gilly gee. And so it would go kind of like poop, pee, we, gilly gee. And uh, we said this over and over and over again. And we tried, we used to just take books and just insert the words poop and pee everywhere. And we was like the one word that was just, for some reason, that was like our rallying call. That was like our... Our motto, I don't know. I mean, we just said it all the time. Just we. We! We used to do that all the time. We! Some of the other stuff that we had in common, we were... Our favorite group was the village people. And we used to listen to the village people all the time and just totally obsess about them, having no idea what they were singing about at all. Um, and the Dukes of Hazard was another one. And, uh, and Star Wars. Those are very big things. And sports. I basically discovered sexuality through him. And we used to play spin the bottle in his room. And we would uh, take off an article of clothing for when it would land on us. And it was the first time we'd ever been naked in front of another person, except for our parents. And... Um, 
it was petrifying, but it was also just this whole discovery period of just seeing another, another, another man naked there. And it became this whole game that we played often. And we just would revel in the fact of just standing there in front of each other totally naked, assuming these characters just like, you know, hi, Mr. Jones, how are you? Nice to meet you, businessmen and everything, just standing there completely buck naked. <laughs> um, and so terrified that we were ever going to get caught because his parents were always home. They were always in the house and everything. And we were just so afraid that someone was going to knock on the door. And the one time that was the biggest scare was he... Uh, Dave can basically get, could get anybody to do anything that he wanted them to do. And he um, had a camera and was just, these, these times when I would go up to his house were just fully documented events. You know, he was so, he's very anal retentive. And he loved just documenting everything that was going on. So he would have a camera and take a lot of pictures. And he wanted me to, to pull down my pants and take a picture of me with my pants down. And I was just refusing to do it. I would not let it be caught on film and he was just insisting and he went through this entire I mean he just was trying to coax me for so long just telling me all these different things that he was going to do for me and and um just saying oh nobody's going to see it you know I'll, and he came up with this whole scheme of how nobody would see the film and everything and just these elaborate elaborate plans on how nobody would see these pictures and I just refused kept refusing and refusing and refusing and and then finally, at the end of it, he was like, he was like, all right, just, just take down your pants anyway. I won't take a picture. I swear to you, I won't take a picture. I promise. And I still didn't believe him. And he was like, look, I promise, I promise, I promise. This went on for like an hour of him trying to coax me to take my pants down. And he promised me at the bottom of his heart that he was not going to take a picture. And so I was like, fine. So I like unbuckled my belt and I unbuckled my pants and I pulled down my zipper and I just flew up, whipped open my pants and I had my underwear on. And then I put myself all back together again and when I had my pants open he took a picture and I was like oh and I was terrified because when you're that age when you're like 11 and 12 years old you can't you can't go in and get your pictures developed yourself and pay for them and get them and I thought somebody's gonna get these pictures developed and somebody's gonna see them so uh weeks later I was going up to his house again and in the car going up to his house his mother was driving he was like I got the pictures back and I said, oh, my God. And he was like, you're not going to believe what's on there. And I said, but what can be? I didn't, I didn't, you didn't see anything. And he was like, I know, but you have to see this because it's there. And I was like, but it can't be because I didn't take my pants down. And he was like, I know, but it's there. It's there. You have to see it. He pulls out the pictures and I looked at it and I, it, my penis was hanging out there. And I was like, but I didn't do it. And he was like, you must have. And I said, but I know I didn't. I know I just opened my pants. And he said, you must have done it. Maybe it just fell out or something. And I said, but it can't be. And we racked our brains just trying to figure out what had happened because I knew that I hadn't pulled my underwear down. Um, so that night we were, at a, we were at a football game, a high school football game. And we were looking at the pictures again, just examining them. We were way up in the bleachers in a corner and we took them out and we were looking at them and we were trying to explain what had happened. And finally we figured out that it was the inside of my belt that looked like my penis. And we were like, oh! And so I was completely relieved, but I made him, I watched him just tear up the picture into like a thousand pieces and went through this whole elaborate method to like bury the pieces in the bottom of a trash can at this football stadium. And I was still petrified that somebody was going to find them and like piece them together. point that it started to change was um, as we were going into sixth grade we were constantly being separated in class and that's around the time when people start to realize that there's a difference between someone who's straight and someone who's gay and <clears throat> there was just grumblings happening people were accusing us of being homosexual and um we weren't in any way, but we also knew of all the, you know, all the things that we had done with each other in each other's presence. And uh, I think when people started to think that we were gay, we suddenly, that just rose to the surface and we, we realized that there was a cool thing and a not cool thing and we were definitely not cool in the friendship that we were in. And that's also around that time when 
in my town at least, and I think a lot of small towns, is where sports just become the most important thing in your life. And uh, I was not a good athlete then at all. Dave was a good athlete. Um, And Dave organized a big football party one weekend where we were going to go out there and play football and have a sleepover and then the next day play more football. Um, Dave just organized this thing unbelievably. He had jerseys printed up with numbers and names on them. He had, uh, he had teams with rosters. He had practice for his team with plays. There was like a playbook. Uh, this is like for, you know, a little football game, like three on three football or four on four football, uh, touch football. And every single minute was, was decided upon beforehand by him as to what we would do, where we would be, what we would eat, the food we would eat, um, when we would play football, it was all timed out. He's just, he is so organized and anal retentive about it. I don't remember very well, but I can't imagine that I played tremendously well. And I think, I was thinking about this today. I was trying to, to think of the moment when everything changed. And it, I'm almost positive it was that event. It was the football party. And immediately after that, he just totally stopped talking to me. How Dave turned the class against Bob as the show continues. Now, have you read of the fable of Cain and Abel? Once there was in a scandal that shook the town. Cain became mighty jealous of brother Abel. So he rose up and smote Abel down. Now the Lord sure was hopping mad. And yet he was plenty sad to think that he had a man like Cain. The Lord spoke and showed his wrath, and Cain walked the path that led to a life full of pain. You can't run from the shadow of retribution. If you're bad, then you've got to pay for your wrong. Let yourself take a lesson from Cain and Abel. Don't lament, be content. Don't resent what the Lord has sent. And you'll find that you're bound to get along. Well, it is your Radio Playhouse, and we do want you to call. 832-3160 in area code 312. Hey, Shirley Jihad, are you there? Hey, Ira Glass. Hey, honey. This is an intriguing little tale. Well, as we try to present here on this, our little Radio Playhouse radio show, um, are people calling? <laughs> people are calling. 312-832-3160. I don't have the exact count yet, but the phones are ringing, and people are supersizing their wait, wait, pledges. You said the magic word, which means I have to get rid of this music Uh-oh. and bring on... Here's... You recognize this, Shirley? It, this could it be? Uh, it, it's it's, it's the familiar, yet form, yet 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 foreign. <laughs> this is this is the Mormon Tabernacle Choir version of La Bamba, which oh appears God. to you when you say the word supersize. Supersize your pledge for four ninety five, and That's you it. get ninety minutes of La Bamba. <laughs> Blessing or a curse. And remember, our three special premia, one is uh, the Uncabaret CD, which is basically comics telling stories about their own lives. The second thing is the Shut Up Little Man CD. And the third thing is David Sedaris, including lots of material heard on this program, but also, for example, the Christmas... Uh, the Santa this, Land Diary. No, not... No. The, no, no. I feel like we've given that away too many times. But oh. this year, David did... I'm sorry. But this year, David did a, a story for Morning Edition that we had to cut about three minutes out to fit it into a Morning Edition segment. People who buy the cassette will get the uncut version. And it's the story about how uh, he was having a bad Christmas one year until his sister brought home a prostitute who she knew from work. What were the prison guards really like, Amy asked. Which do you like better, spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? Tiffany tried on Donna's shoes while Gretchen modeled her jacket. Donna the Christmas whore. Oh my, ho, ho, yeah, ho. Yeah, ho, ho, ho. And yeah. what's the number again? 312-832-3160, <laughs> like this one we're in the middle for of. For the whole family. 
312-832-3160, a slew of premiums, all kinds of great uh, comedy and performance and storytelling and wonderful music, 90-minute cassette of La Bamba in many varieties, 312-832-3160. If you say supersize it, those volunteers will know what you mean. In fact, you can get any premium that the station is selling, anything, anything you've heard all day and that you're going to hear all week and just say supersize it only during this show. At 495 you get that Mubamba tape. Your Radio Playhouse, 312-832-3160. Check back with you later, Shirley. Thanks, Ira. Act 2, Dave's Hatred. Dave and Bob were best friends, and now Dave started using all the tactics that adults use in, uh, in uh, political situations, in power situations, uh, all the tactics one uses to turn people against one another, whispering in ears, things like that. Bob, who is now a theater director in New York City, by the way, Bob tells the story. I remember going into class in seventh grade on the first day of school and him not talking to me and everybody just wondering. I mean, the whole school was wondering why there was this big fight going on between Dave and Bob. And I remember just not having an answer for anybody. I used to tell them to ask Dave. I had no idea. And I used to tell people that he just stopped talking to me. And I remember that he became completely bent on turning everyone against me, the whole school. And he did it very well because he's so organized and because he's so manipulative. And I saw him, and I saw him telling people to say things to me. And I, he, he was the one who formed the I Hate... They used to call me Coos then. And they, uh, he was the one who formed the I Hate Coos Club. Uh, he, used to t- he used to... He never did anything to me himself. He would never come up to me and make fun of me. He would never come up to me and hit me. Or uh, he would never assault me personally. But he would just get everyone else to do it for him. So he would send people to say things to me. You know, I remember one time in the lunchroom, Sam saying, uh, have you ever been caught masturbating? And, of course, either answer is you damn yourself if you answer yes or if you answer no. And I remember hearing Dave tell him to ask me that. I used to just get made fun of horrendously by everyone. Uh, People would make fun of the way that I chewed at lunch. People would make fun of the way that I laughed. People would make fun of the way that I coughed, that I sneezed. People would make fun of the way that I walked. There was just this, this teasing. But that makes it even sound less violent than it was. It was just a mocking. It was a very pointed mocking on everyone's part. Um, I remember sitting alone at the lunch table with no one to talk to and just wanting so badly for no one to turn their attention to me because I knew that the attention would be negative. I remember um, just not understanding what was going on. You know, I had been in such a sweet position with this person. We had such a good friendship, and then all of a sudden, everyone had just turned against me. And he wasn't like a Pied Piper. He was so subtle, and he was so quiet, and he never really, he never, I don't think he ever had a friendship with people like he had with me. Um, But he was just able to organize people into these different factions. He would just say, you know, go over to Coos and just, you know, shove him into a locker. And they'd go do it. That was the worst period, I think, of my entire life, was that period. I used to go home from school and cry after school. I used to go to my dog and hug my dog and say, you are my only friend in the world. Then he started to kind of needle me. Um, I remember one thing that he did was there was this uh, guy, Mike, in my class. And Mike was what we called in my hometown a scummer, which meant that he was on welfare. He wore, he perhaps didn't have a pair of pants for every day of the week. Um, He was, you know, very smart, (laughs) which was, you know, was a strike against him at that age. And uh, he just didn't fit in. He was a real geek. And so Dave organized this fight between Mike and I, a fist fight, 
to prove who was the bigger faggot. Whoever would lose was the bigger faggot. Um, and he positioned us. He spun it so there was no way I could not fight. If I didn't, if I didn't have this fight, then I would just be. Things would just get worse for me. Things would get worse. I mean, Mike was like at the bottom of the barrel, and I was there with him. And Dave had to prove that I was below him, and so he organized this whole fight. And everyone in the class was like, "Are you gonna fight?" Mike, you're going to fight Mike. And I finally just conceded and I conceded to fight him. And, um, Dave organized the whole event. It was to happen at this playground. And, um, we went and he tried to get this whole audience to come and see it. Unfortunately, nobody came but him. Well, I guess fortunately nobody came but him and one other person. And so Mike and I went there and neither of us wanted to fight each other. Neither of us had any reason in the world to fight each other. So I just remember standing there facing him, just like laughing, just like, what are we supposed to do? We're standing here. We've been forced into this just to save our own souls. And now we have to like inflict pain on each other. And we stood there for the longest time and Dave kept, Dave kept trying to push us into fighting. He was saying, come on, just throw a punch, just throw a punch, just start. We waited for the longest time, and then finally, I was just like, this is ridiculous. So I went up, and I shoved him. And then we started to fight. And we weren't really into fighting, but we were, we had to do it then. And I pushed him at one point, and he fell backwards, and he hurt his wrist. And I got on top of him, and I held his wrist. And I remember saying to him, do you, do you give up? And he wouldn't give up. And I was holding his wrist back. And each time, I kept asking him if he was going to give up, and he kept saying no. And each time he'd say, no, I'd, I'd bend his wrist back a little bit more. And he was just crying in pain. And I kept saying, I'm going to bend it back. I'm going to bend it back. I'm going to bend it back. Thinking, I don't want to break this person's wrist. I have no reason to break this person's wrist. And I was faced at that moment with either giving up and just getting kicked even more or going ahead with really hurting this person and hoping that it would save me in some way. And... Uh, I broke his wrist. He came in the next day into school with cast on. I don't know how his family paid for his cast. And everybody saw that and said, You idiot, Coos, what did you do? You idiot. And they just, it made it even worse. I just was so... I just didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. That's the most frustrating thing for me, even still today. Um, I always thought it was me. I always thought it was something I was doing. I thought it was some, the way that I wore my clothes. I thought it was the shoes that I wore. I thought it was the way that I laughed. I remember, and I remember I tried to change these things. I tried not to laugh so loud. I tried to cough differently. I mean, they, they, made, fun of the, they made fun of the most minuscule things that are just human, like chewing. You know, they, if they would have... Like, notice the way that I breathe, they would have made fun of that. I remember I tried to lift, tried lifting weights, and it was just, it was impossible because there was nothing I could do to make them change their minds. You know, if I lifted weights, it was the way that I lifted weights, or it was just something, they would come up with something. It was just a no-win situation, but it was always, and I knew how, I guess I knew how smart he was, and I knew how well he knew me, and I guess all of a sudden I, th- I had thought that he, had seen all these things in me that were just wrong and just so not cool. I remember very clearly there was a moment that the clouds just cleared and everything became possible. Um, I went to the Pennsylvania Governor's School for the Arts in my junior year. The summer between my junior and senior year, that was when... I met people who were actors, like I was, who were my age, and who respected me. And I remember very clearly, I, um, it was after lunch, and people who were in my theater class had, we were going out of the cafeteria, and I'd forgotten my bag in the cafeteria. And I went, and I said, oh, just wait for me one second, I just want to go get my bag. And I went down to the cafeteria and got my bag, and I came back up, and they were still there waiting for me. And I remember so distinctly remembering oh my god, these people, they waited for me. That meant so much to me because I felt like 
I'm not this idiot. I'm not this geek. I'm not a person who everyone should hate. I'm actually a pretty good human being and people like me. Sometimes I feel like there's some justice in the fact that I am surrounded now by many people who love me and respect me. And I don't know how many people he has in his life. Um, but the tables have turned in that way. And when I, do, when I go back home and I see people looking at me the way that they looked at me in high school, I think there is some justice in this. Because those people are probably, some of those people I've heard are in bad situations with their families. They've got wives they don't love. They've never been through, they've been through divorces. They don't have any friends. They're in the same bar they were in four or five years ago, drinking the same beer they drank. And their gut is a little bigger and their nose is a little redder. And they just look tired. And I feel like my life is in pretty good shape and I'm happy. And that's the sweetest revenge. And last Christmas, I ran into him at a mall. And he looked more jaundiced and more sickly than ever. Bob says that it was because Dave made him an outcast in junior high school that he ended up spending a lot of time with the theater teacher because the other kids wouldn't talk to him. And this teacher put him in plays and took him to plays in New York City, showing him that there was a bigger world outside their hometown. If it weren't for Dave, I would not be doing what I'm doing right now. There's no way. There's, I don't know what I would have been doing, but because of what he did to me, he put, I found theater, and um, it's been a really good life so far. Bob's a director in Manhattan. Dave gives his version of the story in Act 3 of your Radio Playhouse. Now, look here, boy. Now, I don't dig you. I took you for my friend and thought you were my pal. But now I've found out you trying to jive my gal. All shut eyes ain't sleep, and all goodbyes ain't gone. I'm helped to myself, you trying to do me wrong. Do you call that a buddy? No, no. Could that be your buddy? No, no. I'm gonna shoot my buddy. Yes, yes. Mm, he's just a dirty cat. Hey, Shirley Jihad? <laughs> yeah, hey, Roman. I love the way that when he says, I'm going to shoot my buddy, the, bo- just like, yeah. the, the, band, oh. the band just goes like, yeah. yeah <laughs> they get yeah. so excited. <laughs> what a weird moment. <laughs> this is kind of, uh, some parts of it are painful, Ira, to listen to. I bet some people have memories of difficulties in their youth. I think if you want to share, we're going to have to set aside more oh, time. Than well, I'm not going to break. share. Don't worry. <laughs> I won't. Okay. I won't. Well, it's but, okay. Uh, but it's you know you can you can you can call three one two eight three two three one six zero and you'll feel absolved of a lot of things three one two eight three two three one six zero. And what's that magic word? Wait, I, I keep forgetting. It's the number it. to call. And the magic word. Once you call that number, and all the volunteers in that pledge room will know when you say supersize it. It's the disco version of La Bamba. Surely. And all of the volunteers are dirty dancing right now. Yeah, it's a just disco so version. you know. That's right. If you say uh, if you say the thing about La Bamba, if you say supersize it for four ninety five extra, any premium this radio station has, including our three special premia tonight: the Uncabaret CD, the David Sedaris tape, and the Shut Up Little Man CD, they will th- throw in ninety minutes of La Bamba, various La Bambas, on top of it. A variety of La Bambas. 312-832-3160. The number to call. 
to support your radio playhouse. We are looking for new members here on WBEZ in Chicago. And what better place to look than a new program, your radio playhouse, a fantastic new addition to WBEZ's lineup, 312-832-3160. If you've been catching the program the last few shows and, and enjoying it, then give us a call now, 312-832-3160. And, and Shirley, let me play another sample from this Uncabaret CD. Again, this is... um. It's this unusual forum, which isn't exactly stand-up comedy. The comics come and tell stories about their own lives every week in Los Angeles. If you were to fly to Los Angeles and go to this club, it would cost you hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But for just $60 pledge, we're going to give you a CD. And for $64.95, a CD plus this fabulous music. And here's, here's a sample of one of, the, one of the bits. Just play it quickly so people know what they're getting. This is a guy named Terry Sweeney. No relation to Julia Sweeney. I used to go to things like the Mine Shaft, which was in New York when I lived in New York, which is much too hardcore for me. I mean, people would be like really dressed in these leather harnesses and leather caps and dog collars and totally done up. And I would have tried to put on, you know, some a black cardigan or something. <laughs> 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 a mock turtleneck. I thought. <laughs> I'll show you. I can do the scene. So, um... And I saw these two men that were just so hardcore, and one had the other one on a leash, and the nipples were pinched, and things were hanging, and all kinds of apparatus I couldn't even identify. And so I inched close to them, because I want to go, I want to hear what these two are talking about. And I inched behind them, and this guy said, I just love that angel cake. It was so moist. (laughs) the recipe well mother has it on a card i will write mother and have her send it 832-3160-832-3160-312-832-3160 the number to call pledge your support for your radio playhouse wbez's brand new groovy friday evening show 312-832-3160 um again these are premium some of these uh, that are only being offered tonight shirley we'll check back with you in a couple minutes Thanks, Ira. Call, please, call, please, call. We are trying to figure out stuff that you might enjoy now as ever. Well, Act 3, Dave's response. I, it's an odd thing, actually, as a reporter, calling a stranger on the phone and asking him to defend things he did 15 years before as a teenager. Who amongst us wants to get that call, okay? So I reached Dave at his parents' house, where he still lives, and he's a devout Christian now. He writes and edits a Christian magazine for young people. And he says that he's never been happier. No, he does not really think about Bob very often. No, Bob is not a big figure in his life. No, he does not remember the fight with Mike. Yes, he remembers being enemies with Bob in the seventh grade. But no, he wasn't sure why. The best that he could remember, Bob was to blame. Bob, by becoming friends with someone else. They were just like doing these other things, and it was just like, you know, I got really mad and everything, and it was just like going from like best friends to like worst. You know, if if I'm I'm trying to remember this, and he he remembers it. Is this also uh, accurate, or do you remember this as well? He he remembers uh, you you turning other people against him. He says that that at one point there was actually a I hate coups club that you started. Oh gosh. I'm, again, I, I, didn't, I don't even remember that, but now that you say it, I, you know, gosh, that's, what a terrible person I must have been, <laughs> because that's, that's horrible, but, uh, oh, man, I actually kind of remember that now, that's, uh, that's pretty lame. What, what do you remember of it? I, I don't, that's just it, I just, you know, when you said the name, it's like, oh, my gosh, that, that was, did I really do that? <laughs> um, I have no idea. I mean, when he describes you, during that period, he felt like you had a kind of David Koresh-like power over others. <laughs> well, I mean, we were in high school. I mean, I'm trying to think of, uh, huh. Can, can you, can you uh, imagine yourself being seen in that light? No, not really at all. <laughs> you know, looking back now, I feel like I was always the one that was, like, really totally at the bottom of the social level or whatever you want to call it in, in school. And... Um, you know, I'm thinking, well, what would cause me to do something like that? Is it, you know, obviously to make myself look better or something? Because, um, I don't know, but that's <laughs> that's pretty bad. I tell you the way that um, Bob remembers and interprets uh, what happened 
between the two of you. He doesn't remember it as as being the kind of thing where he became friends with somebody else. He says that um, that you guys were really, really close, really close friends. And then when everybody hit adolescence, a really typical thing happened to you, and that is that other boys started accusing you of being gay and that you publicly just wanted to put a stop to it. Gosh, you know, I'm honestly, I cannot even remember this. Um, he has a, a much better memory than me. I know we were close and everything, but I don't ever, ever remember any accusations like that, no. Um, and I, I'm trying to think, too. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to, like, drag it out of my memory as to, like, why did we start fighting in the first place? And I'm, starting, I'm thinking, but, geez. Actually, the thing that it's making me think about is, is um, in the case of a story like this, I think it's easier for a person who was the injured person or right. believes they were the injured person oh, to sure. remember something than the person who who did something hurtful because I think it's so much more embarrassing to remember yourself as being someone who did something hurtful. Right. Yeah, no, now, you know, I, I work with kids and everything that are about that age, and um, they get in their little spat sometimes, you know, and I just, you know, we just always go to the Bible together and we, you know, I try to, they will look, you know, this person's your friend. You know, we just had an incident like this last week. This one girl, that you know, her friends all of a sudden just wouldn't talk to her. And um, I felt really bad for this person because she's, um, you know, she's always like one of the gang. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, i got to get a hold of her and see what's wrong and everything and, and get all these people back together because this isn't good. Hello? Hi, it's Bob there. Yes, this is Bob. So after I spoke with Dave, I called Bob. I, I guess you can figure that for, out for yourself, huh? You describe him uh, going and sort of whispering in people's ear, Yago-like, yeah. saying, go do this, go do that, walk up, to, walk up to Bob and say this to him, push him in the locker. And yeah. he remembers none of that. I remember that very clearly. Well, he I, remembers none of it. <laughs> I, I remember it very clearly. I, I mean, it, those things, that is stuff that scarred me for years and years and years. And it's no surprise that I remember it and he doesn't. You know, thinking about what happened to you, just thinking about it over the last few days, it's really made me think about what it means to, um, to love somebody. You know, how, you know how when you love somebody, you're always more aware of what they do in the room than anybody else, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And because you guys really loved each other, Anything that he would do in a room would be something that would be more apparent to you than what anybody else was doing and would seem more important. And so if somebody else were just as influential over other kids in the class, well, you would always be more aware of what Dave did. Yeah, he was his, I would say all of his activities were illuminated more to me than to anyone else because of that. But I do know that he was the, he was the focal point for all of this antagonism against me throughout those years. No doubt. I mean, he generated it. It didn't just come from nowhere. It's an odd thing to have a profound experience with somebody else, a really intimate experience. And you remember every detail, you know. And the other person remembers none of it. And so you left there alone, you know. When I talked to Bob, I asked him about this over and over and over again because I thought it was such, an, it was such a particular kind of moment for him. But, uh, but he didn't really take it that way. I don't know. I have no reason to feel lonely about this. You know, I don't expect Dave to remember it. What you're saying sounds like I should be. I should have animosity towards him because of what he did to me. No, I don't mean animosity at all. Actually, but, in fact, just the opposite. Simply, simply, someone else to confirm that it happened, that it happened, and that that it it had a meaning. Yeah. Yeah, you may be right. <laughs> now I feel alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it would be, I can see myself saying, but Dave, don't you remember? This was a massive event in my life. 
for for me, you know, for me, I'm, it's like I, I feel like okay, I see. It's like as you as you were talking, I was thinking like, oh, this is the like Gabriel Garcia Marquez part of the story, <laughs> where like is memory lost? Does memory, you know, does memory last? Does it mean anything if you know an entire nation forgets what it was, or you know, does it mean anything if we are the only one who remembers an experience and and then we are lost, and so that experience is never remembered? Does it mean anything? Yeah, and you're saying really. No. <laughs> Maybe it meant something to me, but it, no, not really. And I can assure you that I am like, is it, uh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. It's Jorge Luis Borges. Like he says, I'm remembering the last time I remembered it, which was a memory of the last time I remembered it, which is a memory of the last time I remembered it, which it increasingly gets more and more dramatic. And the, mo- the moment gets refined down to, it gets distilled down into something which becomes very palatable and very, um, understandable. One loose end in the whole thing, of course, was the friend, the mysterious friend. Remember, Dave said that Bob was to blame for them becoming enemies in the seventh grade by making friends with a guy who we were told is named Mike, though not the Mike whose wrist Bob later broke. I can sort of understand that. Uh, I know which Mike you're referring to, and I know that we did start to become friends then, but the friendship that I had with Dave was always the strongest friendship that I that I ever had up until probably five years ago when I met the person who I consider my best friend now. Um, he always used to use the term false friend in seventh and eighth grade. I remember that clearly. He used to always say I was, I was his false friend. Meaning what? <laughs> well, what is it? I don't know. What does it mean? It means you were a friend, but now it's it's fake or it's... See, to me, false friend means that, that he thinks that you betrayed him. Could be. It could be. God, wouldn't that be awful if, like, it all boiled down to, you know, one event where he felt like me and Mike were becoming friends, and it could have been cleared up in one, you know, just like one conversation... That it was a complete misunderstanding. That it was just a total, tiny misunderstanding that could have been cleared up. Happens all the time. Wouldn't it be, I mean, just, boy, I would just love to see what my life would have been like if that would have happened. In Act 4, another perspective on the whole thing from David Sedaris. But first, let's go to Pledge Central, Shirley Jihad. Ira Glass. Hi, honey. Hi, sweetie. Um, I understand that we're having problems with the phones. We have demons, demons on the uh, pledge lines. Maybe Bob or somebody has infiltrated here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the number is 312-832-3160. If you're having trouble getting through, please be patient and do not give up on us. 312-832-3160 to pledge your support for your radio playhouse um, on WBEZ Chicago. Now, I understand some people are calling and it's ringing, but we're not hearing it ring here. Um, And eventually we do hear it ring, but that's after several Minutes or so, so if you're having so. trouble getting through, and if you don't get through till the exact moment when our show ends, and you want some of the premia from this hour, and the phones aren't working, ask for them, and and we'll give them to you. That's right. Three one two eight three two three one six zero. And uh, let's see. What? What? Let me just uh, review. Uh, here we go. Here's here's a here's something we haven't played yet. Um, some one of the again we have special premia. One is the uncabaret CD. One is the shut up little man CD. Uh, which maybe I'll just play a little clip of that real fast. It's a very odd CD. These two guys uh, who would fight all the time and it's a sort of audio verite recorded by their neighbors next door as these two men would, would scream at each other. Here we go. Uh, your toenails, so why would I worry about it? For God's sake, shut up, little man. I don't want to watch you cut your toenails. I would like to have eaten tonight also, but I can't because of you talking about toenails. Now, I should say, um, the music in there is actually from our little mix that we did on the show. Um, and it's, this is one of those things that it's hard to get a sense of just in a brief little clip. Another mm-hmm. thing we're giving away is um, 
recent work by uh, beloved NPR commentator David Sedaris, and that includes work that he's done here on your radio playhouse, that is, some of the radio plays he's done with his sister Amy and other actors. And, um, and this piece, this half-hour uh, hitchhiking story that he told, here's, here's one little brief, brief episode from, from that story. I got an interminable ride with a pantyhose salesman who spent six hours saying, you just take and take, don't you? Don't you, out there with your thumb in the air, not a care in the world, grabbing whatever you can get. Yes, sir, you take and you take until you're ready to burst. But what about giving? Did you ever think about that? Of course not. You're too busy taking. Me, I'm what you call a taxpayer. Tax, it's a tariff that working people have to pay so that someone like you can enjoy a life of leisure. I give and I give until I've got nothing left. Then I turn right around and I give some more. I give and give to all of Uncle Sam's little takers. And I've been thinking that maybe it's about time I get a little something in return. Yes, indeed. Maybe it's time we try that shoe on the other foot for a change. You, my young friend, are going to wash my car, inside and out, and you're going to pay for it. Anyway, again, the number if you want <laughs> this, this very odd collection of stories from David Sedaris, 8323160. The, the collection includes the story that we're going to hear at the end of this evening's show. 312-832-3160. Call now to pledge your support for Your Radio Playhouse, a place where you hear David Sedaris' stories in their entirety, the uncut versions you will get on that, uh, that uh, cassette that uh, you can get for a $60 pledge, 312-832-3160. Be patient and let that phone ring, and uh, we will yeah, get to we, you as soon as we can. We, you know, we, we put a lot of effort into this show to bring you unusual stories that you will not hear anywhere else, and... Um, and, uh, and, you know, we want your support. You know, we want your support. We, and we were trying to find a premia that, that you would enjoy and could get nowhere else. And, and so please, please call. Please call and join our fun little party here. And, uh, and I guess that's it, 832 312-832-3160. 312-832-3160. And uh, take it, Ira. I okay. guess we'll All right. go on. All right. Well, uh, Act 4, Act 4 of this evening's program is called Another Dave. And uh, this is a story by David Sedaris, frequent morning edition commentator, member of the Pine Tree Gang, contributor to this program. And this is a story of ultimate Machiavelli in Machiavelli in scheming. It's kind of an endpoint as to how far you can go. It's called um, The Last Time You'll Ever Hear From Me. It's a story, and it's read by Sarah Tyre. Dear friends and family, by the time you receive this letter, I will be dead. Those of you attending this service are sitting quietly, holding a beautiful paperweight, a gift from the collection which, in life, had been my pride and joy. You turn the paperweight over in your hands, look deep inside at the object embedded in the glass, be it a rose or a scorpion, whatever, and through your tears you ask, what is death like? By this time, I certainly know the answer to that question, but am unable to give details. Know only that I will one day meet you upon the grassy plains of heaven, where, with the exception of Randy Sachs and Annette Kelper, I will be tickled to embrace you and catch up on all the news. If my instructions were followed the way I wanted them to be, see attached instruction envelope number one. This letter is being read to you from the pulpit of the Simple Shepherd Church of Christ by my best friend, Eileen Mickey. Hi, Eileen, who is wearing the long-sleeved Lisa Montino designer dress I left behind that always looks so good on me. Eileen, I hope you either lost some weight or took it out some on the sides or you're not going to be able to breathe. Also, remember it needs to be dry-cleaned. I know how you and your family love to skimp, but please don't listen to what anyone says about Woolite. Dry-clean. Most of you are probably wondering why I did it. You're whispering, Why, Lord? Why take Trish Moody? Trish was a ray of bright sunshine, always so up and perky and full of love. Pretty, too, just as smart and sweet and pretty as they come. You're probably shaking your heads and thinking there's plenty of people a lot worse than Trish Moody. There's her former excuse for a boyfriend, Randy Sykes, for example. The boyfriend who, after Trish accidentally backed her car over his dog, practically beat her senseless. He beat her with words, but still, it might as well have been with his fists. He struck her again and again with words and names such as manipulative, jealous, childish, 
and others I wouldn't justify in print. The dog's death was a tragic accident, but perhaps also a blessing in disguise, as Randy tended to spend entirely too much time with it. What did Trisha's mother say when her daughter, heartbroken over her breakup with Randy, came to her in search of love and understanding? If you're looking for sympathy, you can find it between sob story and syphilis in the dictionary. Perhaps my mother can live with slogans such as this. I know I can't. Neither can I live surrounded by friends such as Annette Kelper. Poor, chubby Annette Kelper who desperately tries to pretend that nobody notices the fact that she's balding on top of her head. That's right. Look closely. Balding, just like a man. Perhaps Randy feels sorry for Chrome Dome Annette. Maybe that's why he was seen twice in her company in a single five-day period. Seen standing together in the parking lot of the Burger Tabernacle, her home away from home, and seen huddled together, laughing on the escalator of the Crabtree Valley Mall. Annette, my supposed best friend, who secretly wanted and coveted everything I owned. Is everyone on earth as two-faced as Annette Kelper? Is everyone as cruel as Randy Sykes? I think not. Most of you, the loved ones I left behind, are simple, devoted people. I urge you now to take a look around the room. Are Randy Sykes and Annette sitting in the audience? Are they shifting uncomfortably in the pew, shielding their faces with the eight-and-a-half-by-eleven photograph of me I had reproduced to serve as a memento of this occasion? Eileen, read this part real fast before they have a chance to leave. Randy Sykes' drip is the size of my little finger, and that's when it's hard. And I'm not counting the nail, just a finger. He had sex two times with the boy at Camp Ticonderoga when he was in junior high school. Maybe that explains why he loves it when somebody sticks their finger up his couvade. He used to beg me to do that, but I refused. I said, no way, Randy. He used to do it to himself all the time. That's why I never held hands with him. His hands stink. He secretly thinks he looks like Marlon Brando, but take a good look. A young Marlon Perkins is more like it. Maybe that's what he sees in Annette Kelper. He's an animal lover. She used to come to my house crying, her breath smelling a mile off like her uncle's drip. She said he forced her, but that's a lie because you don't force whores, and that's what she is, a whore. Annette and Randy deserve each other. Drip breath and stinky finger riding up and down the escalator. At Crabtree Valley, up and down, up and down. Fancy little shuck cutlets, look at them. Take a good hard look at them. It's their fault I'm dead. They are to blame. I urge you now to take those paperweights and stone them. Release your anger. The Bible says it's all right to cast the first stone if someone dead is telling you to do it, and I'm telling you now. Pretend the paperweights are stones and cast them upon the guilty. I put aside my savings to pay for the damages to the walls and windows. It's money I was saving for my wedding, and there's plenty of it, so throw. Hurt them the way they hurt me. Kill them. Nobody will hold you responsible. Kill them. Eileen, I'm going to allow a few minutes here because it might take a while for certain people to get into the swing of it. Pop in the cassette mark stoning and wait until both Randy and Annette are lifeless. Wait until everyone is finished with their paperweights and then I want you to hand the microphone over to my mother. Watch the way she trembles and stutters and remember every gesture as if you were me. Look here, boy. Let me tell you something. You're the most no-goodest cat I ever met. You've been eating up all my red beans and rice and trying to bite me in the back for my wife, you old dog. You wait till this chorus is over. I'm going to tell you a thing or two. Now, I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal, you. Well, 832-3160. Show Jihad? Well, I guess you're not there. <laughs> Here, you are. I am here. You know, our volunteers are so resourceful. And are they getting phone calls in? We, They are taking your phone calls now at 312-832-3160. Okay, you can get that story, which was from uh, David Sedaris's book, Barrel Fever, read by Sarah Thayer, plus also lots of other David Sedaris work, a 90-minute cassette full of all sorts of stuff. For just $60. 312-832-3160. Other, uh, or the two CDs that we've been plugging all hour. Um, I should also mention that David is going to be here in Chicago live this coming Saturday night at the Park West for Millie's Orchid Show. You might want to go see him there. Cool. Yeah. 312-832-3160. Call now and what, Ira? And and pledge your support. Remember, this is the only time you're going to get during the drive to get most of these premia. 
and supersize it. Supersize it. Well, funding for this program has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago. And does that list include you? Today's program was produced by Peter Clowney and myself, with Dolores Wilbur, Elise Spiegel, and Nancy Updike. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rocklin, and Paul Tuff. Paul Tuff did the fabulous original interview with Bob, featured in the first half of this program. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. Special thanks tonight to Manoli Weatherall, who recorded Sarah Thayer in New York City, to Betsy and Lydia at Pledge Central, to the volunteers, to the contributors, to Shirley Jihad, to Alan Bill for the fabulous studio work. To buy a tape of this or other Playhouse shows, call us at WBEZ 832-3380 or email us, radio at well.com. We broadcast proudly from WBEZ Chicago. We'll be back next week with more stories of This American Life. See you then.